You're listening to Love of the Links Golf Radio with your hosts, Brendan Elliott, Bob Baldessari, Andy Hydorn, and Chris Ray. All right, Love of the Links Season 3, I think Episode 4. Yeah, Episode 4. I'm looking at the notes here. Uh, and we've got, in my opinion, one of the best guests that we've had in the past back on with us, Maurice Allen. Welcome, sir. Good to have you. Thanks for having me. Um, Bobby, you and Maurice have a history together. One of the topics that we were talking before we started recording was some of the great stuff that Maurice has been doing most recently. Um, and Bobby, I believe you were part of some of the, the selection. Was that right? With the selection committee? Yeah, I was honored to be uh, on the selection committee with uh, that Maurice put together. So uh, we do have a good history. When you say we have a history, it's all good. Uh, it's it's a privileged uh, history to see. He's from the day I met him, he had a vision and a plan to do things in golf. And I thought, oh, it's a young guy that uh, you know knew to golf, and he opened my eyes to some things that are possible. But that's just the way that the kind of guy he is, and um, he's. I have this in my office. He gave this to me a few years ago, so I don't know if you can see it, but he is a uh, Guinness World Book of Record holder, so it's not every day you hang with a guy like that. Um, little action shots. So I have that in my office here, and it's uh, pretty sobering to see Maurice in action, especially uh, one of the first times we got together. He was doing a challenge and saying to somebody, will you use your driver? I'll use my pitching wedge and I'll, I'll outdrive you. <laughs> and people were like, Oh, that's easy. <laughs> and then he was, uh, he got me in trouble because we were doing something at the, uh, uh, the old PGA learning center. And he was hitting balls across the learning center out of, out of the property and into people's backyards. And we were getting phone calls and I was like, hey, Murray, you, you got to keep it in play. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's truly been, one of the one of the neatest things in my career to, to have a, a friend like him and uh, a golf brother um, that's really you know there's, there's few people in golf that change things that evolve things and um, he's actually doing that especially with this growth of the game uh, foundation out of uh, MA 360. So uh, yeah, anytime we can get uh, Maurice with us, Mighty Mo, he's got a busy schedule, but uh, uh, always a pleasure to see you, my friend. Uh. Yeah, see, you got a Rangers jersey back there. See, Andy's got a – looks like a Patriots thing over his bookshelf. That is correct. Sad, sad day to be you guys. Yeah. Man, you guys suck. Can't wait till the draft comes, huh? Yeah. We can't. Yeah. I'm balancing forward, the Celtics hat. Yeah, you're looking forward to the 2025 season. Gotcha. All good. There's Rebuild. another, there's another Tom Brady in high school somewhere. We might have a side wager on that one, Maurice. Middle school. Middle school. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking 2028, 20, but it's okay. <laughs> All good. Good run. Yeah. yeah. Great run. And so, so pre recording, we were talking about some of the things we wanted to talk about today. And uh, Andy had a great point, Maurice, and I'd, I'd love to start there. So, the art of hitting the long ball. And, and as I said to you, I, I follow you, I follow. Uh, Kyle, I, I file a lot of these long drive guys. And I, to me, it seems like obviously speed's the big thing that everybody's chasing. And it's, it's your, your swing speed, your ball speed, but like the training that goes into that, like what, 
specifically with you, what is what are some of the things that you do to to work up to the point where you won a world championship and then to keep yourself in, in that form? Uh, for me, it was different. So, you know, if you look at myself and then you look at Kyle, two complete different ends of the spectrum. Um, you know, at the end of long drive, they started doing this weird thing where uh, guys started going to senior flex and regular flex shafts. So, um, you know, from a PGA standpoint uh, or from a club guy, you can look at how sometimes the ball speeds don't really match the swing speeds when you really look at there's uh, the efficiency factor is way down. And it's because, number one, a lot of these guys are using, you know, senior flex, regular flex shafts, which are probably like 220 CPMs at that length. Um, and then the other problem that you're going to run into, obviously, is the mass. When you're having something that weak, the, the physics of it, the mass is just not going to be there. The shaft can't be as heavy. Um, versus when I won, I was using a 80 gram, uh, about, I don't know, 290 CPM. So probably three, four X, four X shaft. Um, and so you look at those two things, right? When you look at the guys with the whippier shafts, it's not even the speed because the speed is easy to generate when you have a shaft that's so whippy. It's more about controlling the spin and keeping the ball on the planet. And I don't think that they get enough credit for doing that part. Um, that's the, the big difference. You know, everybody's on this 230 ball speed challenge, I guess. And I mean, Bob was there when I went 228 and change. And that was early in my career. And I did it with a super stiff um, shaft when I did that. But, you know, looking at it, people think that creating speed or you, you can't teach speed. It's kind of like, you know, the old football coaches. They're like, you can coach a lot of things, but you can't coach speed. Golf is one of those things where they start kids off early and they put a governor on them. You know, they keep telling them to slow down, slow down, gain control. And that was one of the old teaching methods was you have to be in control and we need to slow you down. We need to slow the backswing down, get you pausing at the top and all of these other different things. Don't take your backswing so far back is one of the big things that was always taught. And what you end up doing is you put these young people or these golfers in a position where they'll, the muscle memory will stop remembering how to get back there the proprioception will be way off and then they'll never be able to find that versus the teaching methods now are swing out of your shoes and we'll figure it out so and that's where the difference is so so with that said and we never know i teach a lot of kids that's that's what my business is so we don't know if an 11 or 12 year old wants to do what you do someday so from mm -hmm. that respect, yeah, don't don't throw, you know, bumpers on, on the lanes for them and have them just swing and we'll figure it out later. From a technique standpoint, do you would you think someone in my position could have issues with that frame of thought? Because I do I do kind of lean that way of trying to let them, especially young ladies. I work with a lot of young ladies just swing it hard, just swing it hard. So what are the fears with that or is it just not really something I should be concerned about. I believe golf uh, from a teaching standpoint is all about philosophy, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to live and die with your philosophy. You have to have conviction with your philosophy. So I'm not going to tell you that you're right or you're wrong. Yeah. Um, it's a personal belief system and the beauty of it, and no disrespect to you, but if the kids don't like your philosophy, go True. somewhere else. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of yeah. the simplest thing that you can do in this game. Right. Um, 
you know, especially now with obviously we're on the Zoom. So people have found creative ways to teach and gain, you know, more students and all these other things. So, I mean, you just work with what works best for you. If you're a person who believes that getting these certain positions in the swing is the most important part of it, um, then you have to continue to teach that. You can't go out there and tell people, blow it off the hinges and then we'll figure it out. If you're a positions guy, if you're a speed guy, you really don't care about the position. You'll just tell the kids to feel it out on the way through their swing. Um, And I think that those are two completely different ends of the spectrum. And you just work with what's what you have. And there's, there's nothing wrong with either one of them. I mean, let's be hundred percent honest. There is no recipe for developing PGA and LPGA pros. People have tried, you know, they did it with the whole Michelle Wee thing. You saw parents out there sitting under umbrellas thinking their kids had to hit a thousand balls a day. People have tried to be Tiger and go to these outrageous training and all this other stuff. That's just not real. I mean, golf is not a sport where people think it because it's not like football or because it's not like basketball or baseball. They think the numbers are so significantly smaller that the chances of becoming a pro should be greater. And that's just not the case. I mean, if you look at any professional athlete, I don't care what sport it is, they are the best at what they do. And being the best at what you do has a lot to do with, you know, God-given ability, you know, work ethic, all these other different things that you come in contact with. Being a professional athlete is not easy it's just like saying oh well being a ceo is easy oh okay let me know how that works out it's the dumbest thing i've ever heard in my life (laughs) yeah one one of the things that that to me that i've come to realize too is that technology and and more importantly the people who mine technology you know the the biomechanists and and some of the people that really understand, you know, ground forces and things like that have, have come a long way in helping everybody else understand some of the things that do affect speed, right? And, and we see that happen all the time. And there's, there's a program in particular called Mach 3 with Mike Romatowski um, down in San Antonio, where it's really interesting. And, and, and I know, Brendan, you're familiar with Mach 3, but it's interesting what they do is, is they put people through, you know, kind of exercises that, that are, you know, non golf club hitting ball exercises, but, but golf related exercises and, and trying to build up speed. And, and uh, the interesting thing is, is as the speed increases and as people do these exercises, all of a sudden the positioning, you know, that people seem to be so hyper-focused on the past, that all of a sudden gets better as people start to, to move their bodies more efficiently, the positions get there anyway. So it's kind of like been a, a little bit of a realization that, that if, if you do the speed part first, the body reacts correctly to support what, what the player's trying to do. And, and uh, Mach 3 has been, been an awesome thing to watch and, and the way people have evolved you know, doing their exercises and, and uh, it's not just better for their speed. It's better for their, their golf swing. Well, I think the difference with, I don't know what Mach 3 is, so apologize for my ignorance on that. But what Mach 3 sounds like to me, since everybody on this call is in the 40 and up crew, it sounds like, hey, you know what? 
I play, yes, Bob, especially you. Um, I play, you know, either fall baseball or I play football. Then I go to basketball. Then I do soccer or something to that nature. And then I come back and I play golf. And that's what, you know, the older, older crew, that's what we used to do. We didn't play one sport all year long and have that repetitive motion. You went from, you know, you had your baseball friends, you had your football friends, you had your basketball friends, and you just went from sport to sport to sport and you continued to get better. And that's kind of what this sounds like. It's, it's cross, you know, back in the nineties, it was called cross training. You know, that was a big part of it. I think that's more, the most important thing that you see is you start developing different muscles when you're playing different sports, rather than that same old, same old repetitive motion, which ultimately leads to injury. Do you think that was a turning point in golf? Maybe where golfers started to be recognized as athletes? Yeah. I mean, look at, I mean, look at your golfers right now with the exception of like a tiger, right? Gary Woodland was a basketball player. Ricky Fowler was a BMX guy. John Rom. I mean, you can go down the list of them. They weren't solely golfers. It wasn't, that wasn't the case. These are people who have played other sports and most importantly, excelled at other sports. Not some guy who was just sitting on the bench and I went to go play golf because I couldn't get any PT. Yeah. You know, and that's that's the biggest part of it. When you start getting that, the mindset changes because these guys are coming from other sports. So they know what base conditioning they understand the weight room. They understand the mindset. They understand pliability and all of this other junk that you have to do to be an athlete. And then most importantly, they understand recovery because, you know, golfers used to be, oh, well, we're going into the 19th hole, have some bourbon, some cigars, and blah, 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 blah. But now you're looking at guys, they'll go and get on a treadmill. They'll go and hook up to the Normatech system and get the compression. They'll make sure the stretch therapy is right. The chiropractors are there. They go through a whole list of things that, you know, honestly, up until the 2000s, no one was really doing in golf. You know, you never saw a physio in golf unless someone was actually hurt. There wasn't a standard care or protocol for recovery; it just didn't exist. I mean, you look at a golf swing these days. Just even tour players, there's a violence to it um, on the body that people don't realize. And they see the last few holes coming up, 18. You know, Sunday, they don't see all the training, the practice rounds, the walking. I mean, you know, walking's walking. It's not like you're you're running a marathon, but there's enough physical exertion there that you're right. At the end of the day. Um, it's a different physical, I don't know, um, it's a f physical forces on the body um, that the recovery is, is it's a whole different, it, it is different these days. And um, yeah, I wanted to, we were talking earlier too about um, PGA Tour players that are hitting it exceptionally long, the, the DeChambeau's and others. Um, and could they be, you know, I, <laughs> and could they be on you know, the, what you do? long drive and long drive tour or long drive uh, uh, competitors being on tour, you know, how, how could that work? And I remember when you were, you were thinking about doing a PGA membership, Maurice, and you went to do your first PAT, the playing ability test. And you came back and we talked and you said, oh, you know, I just had trouble with the driver on the regulation course. And I said, you don't need a driver. You need a seven iron. I said, please just take your seven iron to wedges because you're hitting your seven iron 300 yards you and so that's what you did you passed it I'm it's like it's just it's inspiring to see you just hit the ball and play and um so you know we wanted to you know chat with you about that as far as just the idea of um 
do you think you could see somebody from the long drop competition actually get on tour and, and do some pretty good things? Well, let's see. Um, as far as going the other way from golf to long drive. So when you look at everything that's going on with Bryson, you have to clear up a lot of ignorance that people have, right? So Bryson has a four degree driver, which is essentially a long drive driver and it's 48 inches long. He's long driving on the course. Now, what you have to look at is the ability for him to hit the ball where he wants to. That's the remarkable part of it. Um, and I think the fastest ball speed he has gotten is 217. So yeah, he could compete. Now, the other part of that that you have to pay attention to is he can, can he's not winning every tournament. He won the U.S. Open and he did it in a dramatic fashion. Um, and then he went to Augusta and said, oh, this is 68 all day long. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's what happened. I think Bernhard actually beat him. Yeah. So it's not it. You golf is a sport where. You know, every week there's a different winner. You're never going to have the same winner every week. Um, but you saw what Tiger was different. I think he won 33 percent of his tournaments at one point. And then he was in the top 10, 75 or 78 percent of the time. Good luck ever seeing that. It's yeah. just never going to happen again. The um, I guess I would say the athletic ability and the talent of the athletes now, the strength of schedule is much stronger now than it was during that reign and time. So that's the first thing. Um, long drivers going to go and play golf. Well, I'm actually doing that. So I believe it's possible. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing it. Right. Um, but the next thing I would say is it takes a different type of look. There actually is a long driver who's doing very well on the tour. Tony Finau used to be a long drive professional. Uh, him and his brother Gipper, his cousin uh, Ben Tuone, still does long drive. So Tony proves that you can be a long driver who's successful on the tour. I think Tony has more top five finishes outside of Xander Shoffley than anybody else. Um, and so that that's the big thing. I think the transition is easier for a long driver to go to golf uh, because than it is for a golfer to go to long drive because that speed aspect, right? Now, the biggest hurdle, um, which is equally on both sides, you know, for them is gaining speed, but for long drivers, it's to control the ego. You don't have to hit the driver all the time. You can go around with the two iron. You can go around with the fairway wood. The whole key would be getting the ball in play. Most golf courses, and then you figure out the golf course. You know, if it's an up north golf course with super thick rough, you don't play in that. It's real simple. Just don't go there. If it's a course like you see uh, some of these PGA Tour stops, you can play there as long as you can pretty much hit it way down there and then hack it out with a wedge of some sort or a nine or eight iron, then you can figure out a way to play. And, you know, that's what you do. But, yeah, I think think it's possible because obviously Tony's doing it and Bryson has done it just in a non-conventional way. People don't think it's a long drive driver, but it is. But. Yeah, it can be done on both sides. Yeah, I, th- I, Go ahead. Sorry, Brendan. You're good. No, I was, I was just going to say that the Bryson thing, the point you made, Maurice, I think is spot on where, you know, when Bryson's on, right, when he's on, like he was last, last fall, he becomes really tough to beat, really tough to even think about beating because 
you know, he's hitting it in play and he's hitting it so much further than everybody else. Um, but the, the, the key point is you still have to be on like, like any other player out there. If you're not on, I mean, if look at Ricky Fowler right now, look at mm-hmm. what Jordan's been through. I mean, that Bryson's not exempt from those same things that plague those players and, and all the other players. So, you know, while, while when you're good, it's an advantage, but you still got to be good. You still got to When you're be- off, it's terrible. Yeah. Bryson is Ricky Bobby. That's, yeah. that's it. That's, that's <laughs> the easiest way to describe him. That's exactly what he is, man. And But that's okay. I mean, you know, he's obviously doing extremely well financially. Um, How is he doing mentally when he gets into those bad rounds? You know, his camp probably knows that. I think he understands that that's a part of the deal. You know, uh, every profession has some some consequences to it. And that's just one of his. He'd be like, all right, if this, if I'm going to do the hit and gouge thing, there are going to be some days where I just suck and I'm just going to have to accept that. It's okay. I, I wanted to segue into what I'm not going to call it what the USGA and RNA has deemed a problem, but they've dumped a whole boatload of money into, into d- investigating this, I'll say. And we, Maurice, we talked about this to uh, the last episode, Bobby and Andy and I, it's and Rory said it best. We all agreed that it's just a considerable waste of mo- money and effort into looking at something like this. I, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. By far the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. By far. And the reason why is simple. Um, 90% of golfers suck. 90% of golfers, ironically, won't break 100, won't break 90 if they play properly by the rules. So the PGA Tour is one one millionth of the golfing population. Um, sorry about that. The PGA Tour is one one millionth of the golfing population. Um, long drive is one one millionth of the golfing population. Those are the only two places that's a problem. It's an issue. I can assure you, you know, people just getting into the game, not an issue. Uh, the senior players who are trying to still enjoy the game, it's not an issue. They're probably happy with the club and the ball and just being able to still enjoy the game and not have to take that long walk of shame to the forward tees. And then most importantly, the people who are already at the forward tees, you roll that ball back or you roll that club back. And then where are you going to find them? Um, I think that this is obviously a, a true test of showing, I guess, as much as I hate to say it, the significance of Tiger to this game because they started Tiger-proofing courses. Courses became extremely long, right? And you look at courses in the 1920s and the 1930s, you know, you got one 6,700 yards, 68 may have been a stretch. Um, 65, 68 was a super big thing. Um, And now, but the way how they did it was simple. You know, they made these postage stamp greens uh, super duper undulating, even on those small greens. And they put bunkers all over the place. Uh, the place where I play right now, um, from the tee box I play, it's like 7,900 yards. And there's a par three that literally, when the pin's in the back, it plays 284. But the green's like 70 yards long. Like, why do you need a green that, that's that big? 
Like that doesn't even remotely make any sense. You know, bring that par three down to 200 yards and make it a 15 yard green and then put some just stupid hills and slopes on there and you've got to be in the right quadrant. That is what changes the game is making it a game of accuracy, but they created this beast. It's, it's like when you look at people who have kids and they allow the kids to run wild and run crazy. And then they become teenagers and adults. And like, Oh my God, they're a problem. No, they were a problem before <laughs> you actually created this problem. You could have nipped this thing in the bud a long time ago, but you, you thought it was cute. And that's what they did. They didn't want to see tiger win a bunch of stuff. And they were tiger proofing courses and building tee boxes that were absolutely ridiculous. And now they're saying, oh, well, now there's a distance problem. Ironically, it's a problem you created. Stupid. Now we're spending money to try to blame something that's actually our fault. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Smartest thing I've ever seen. Thumbs up. Yep. And this is that's a good segue into where more money could be spent in a, in a much thoughtful in a much better way for for growing the game and i wanted to transition into some of the outstanding stuff that you've been doing um and it, it, we saw glimmers of that and you had talked about it when you were on with with bobby and i back in december of 19 but to see a lot of the work that you've been doing come into fruition and it, it's 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 inspiring because this is an issue in our game the diversity issue is an issue that we've had for a long time. There's been glimpses, at least in my opinion, there's been glimpses of positive things happening, but it's still a very significant issue. Um, and I, I myself think like a lot of pros that this could be an easy fix, but I think it goes way deeper than just our game itself. There's, there's a lot of things that have come out over the last year um, with how we as Americans see the big picture in terms of diversity. What we can do is 40 somethings, you call this white golf professionals, what we can do to kind of spearhead this. Something that I've come to understand is it's gotta come from people like yourself, Maurice, that kids of color can identify with. You have made a name for yourself in the game and for you to spearhead that charge or anybody else of color within our industry, that's where the real impact's gonna be made. So that's why I, when I was reading the article on Golf Digest that, that came out a, a, a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago, a week ago, I was like, this is what needs to happen. But my question, and I'm gonna defer back to you on this, and then I'm sure Bobby and Andy have some stuff. What do we do? What, what can we do? I know that the PGA just recently released some uh, some regulations, some guidelines on how to battle uh, the unwelcomingness that you find at a lot of facilities. But again, I think it goes deeper. So I, I'd really love to get get your insight on what we can do. Um, nothing, okay. ironically. And here's the reason why. So let me explain why that nothing is there. Nothing because you're not the problem. So your local PGA teaching pro at, at a, you know, municipal or public course isn't the problem. That's not where people are not feeling welcome. Um, you know, you go to anything that's on golf now, it's, that's not where it, that's not where the real problem is. Um, there may be sprinkles 
of problem. There may be sprinkles of unwelcomeness, right? But when you look at places that are on golf, golf now, that's a perfect example. Those are places trying to make money. They don't care if it's black dollars. They don't care if it's brown dollars. You could be a Martian and they will let you play on those courses. They don't care. The problem that you're having, and this goes to the PGA part, are the quote unquote powers that be. The people who are in top positions who are making the decisions. That's where the disconnect is happening. Happening When you look at the private courses, that's where the real disconnect is happening. Because these are places where, use one for a great example, Alworth, right here in Orlando. There are very few black members at Alworth. Um, Alworth is a place where you go and you stroke a $100,000 check just to walk into the door. And when you walk into the door, they're obviously going to want another check in the next month because those dudes are going to be there, right? But you're paying to be in the company of the elites. And the elites don't like people who um, aren't elite around them. And even more so, there's probably a fear of people who look like me coming in there and they don't know what it's going to be. Um, I remember living in Atlanta and we were talking about the famous peach tree, peach tree you know, country club right there that everyone knows about that who plays golf. And I, I remember having a conversation with, <laughs> had a conversation with Waka Flocka and he and I were laughing because he actually plays golf. And I was like, yeah, man, I know you got a bunch of money, but there ain't no way in hell you getting in that golf course. Oh man, what do you mean? I was like, bro, I know you got a lot of money. I know you can write a million dollar check. And I know they kindly will not take your million dollar check. It's not going to happen. And so when you're looking at places like that, that's where the difference, you know, you look at your OEMs, that's where the difference is happening. You have, I think it was five years ago, maybe four years ago, Callaway did this interesting series that they never really put much publicity to, but they did a thing with uh, this old school rapper Scarface. Yep, I saw that. Um, they did one with Schoolboy Q. Yep. They did one with Arian Foster. And none of this stuff got any, any pub like it really should have. And those were absolutely amazing times to say, you know what? These guys play golf. You all can play golf too. And it starts there. It starts at the top. You know, Odell Beckham Jr. actually plays golf because he was hurt last year playing a lot of golf. And Anthony Anderson, I can go down a lot of people that actually play golf. The NBA, when they were here in Orlando in the bubble, mm -hmm. played golf. These were perfect times to get content and make this thing where it's like, hey, you know something? You're not going to get picked on for playing golf. But because, you know, golf is really run by the private sector. It's not the public sector. It's not your, and it's not your average guy who, or average lady who's a PGA, LPGA instructor. No, it, it's literally the people who are just stuck in this highly affluent society that they don't want. They don't want it to mix. They don't want it to mingle. And that's why I said, like in my golf channel interview, when you look at everything that's supposedly happening with diversity and inclusion and you have all these fortune 500 companies, majority of these people who sit on the boards or the CEOs or officers, they all have golf memberships somewhere. And I can assure you the places where they have memberships are prestigious clubs. You go to these prestigious clubs. I can guarantee you there are less than 10 to 15 black people at these places. 
So if these people don't have people who look like me in their social setting, how can you ever expect them to have it in their professional setting? And you're not living by the quote unquote example that you want. Um, the PGA, nobody, nobody really recognized Black History Month at all, like a full recognition of it. Uh, it didn't happen with golf.com and all these other things. And when I say recognize, I'm looking on Instagram. So when you say that you're trying to grow the game through the youth, then you have to go where the youth are. No one knows about your website because no one knows that you exist. Young kids aren't going on Facebook. Why? Because their parents are on Facebook. They don't want to see their parents on their social media. So then what happens is you'll see it on Instagram. Okay. Instagram would be a great place because if they actually had more black quote unquote ambassadors or influencers, whichever word you want to use, then you would see the co-branding between you know, the major OEM and the individual. But if you look at any of these OEMs, they don't actually have any black influencers. I dare you to find the black influencer with Puma Cobra. I will certainly wait to see this. And don't use Willie Mack and Kamayu who they gave some clothing to because right. they don't count. Right. Find somebody like even, and Bob even knows this, you know, Bob and I talked about it for years. I never, I couldn't get Puma to give me shoes for free. Honestly. It was the weirdest thing. The whole time I was winning worlds and doing all this other stuff, I mean, it was a constant fight. But a lot of these companies, they're, they're not doing that. Um, I think that the heaviest company as far as diversity and inclusion is considered outside of Nike because obviously you can't use Nike, right? It would probably be um, Grayson, you know, the clothing company. They're constantly putting stuff up. And that's, that's one company out of how many? Well, you know, I, then, go ahead. I would I would say that that I worked for Callaway for a long time and back in in their, you know, most profitable days, you know, the 1990 to, to the early 2000s. And we had quite a bit of of diverse endorsers, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, and part of that was was because some of our our PGA, our player endorsers were. Jim Dent and right and um, Jim you know, Thorpe was on there as well. Yep, Jim yes, Thorpe was another that. one. So so Callaway definitely crossed the line back then, and and you know was trying to appeal to. And I will tell you this: that as somebody with the antenna up, when I walked around and I went to a place and I saw, you know, an African American golfer out there, they were they they were playing Callaway golf clubs. You know, mm -hmm. I think I think they recognize that and maybe through through, you know, their their support of Jim Dent and Jim Thorpe and whatever. But but there is definitely a, a, a part of that at, at our company at that point in time. Yeah. And unfortunately, that went away. When you look at the 90s to the early 2000s, that was also the Tiger era. Mm -hmm. yeah. So people were it was, quote unquote, more socially acceptable but then once tiger got to this god complex um everything changed you know you see that a lot people say oh well how does racism and golf exist when the best golfer on the planet or in history is black i'm like yeah that mm, that's one and he's not really black and we all know that so that's just it's, it's a completely different thing and you know i do understand that there are all these companies do have PGA and LPGA ambassadors. But the problem would be as far as being welcoming, if you don't put these people up, if they're not visible, 
then how are they welcome? How do you know that they exist? And I'm not saying that they don't have them. Uh, all companies have them, you know, but I look at the APGA tour is probably the best example, or I look at players that are coming out of HBCUs. None of these people are actually looked at by any of the OEMs when they get ready to graduate and say, hey, we're going to at least at the bare minimum, give you a pro staff position where you get, you know, a set of clubs every year, get the new equipment, we get you some balls, some shoes, something like that, just to help you on your journey of trying to become professional. That doesn't exist at all. Um, that's a that's a big issue because if they did that, if all of these OEMs said, you know what, we're going to take the top, I don't know, whoever, collegiately, and we're going to sign them, and it, it doesn't even have to be the biggest deal in the world, but just something simple, help them with entry fees and things of that nature, this person would automatically put it up on their social. The more that these young people see people in their 20s, hey, you know, I just signed with TaylorMade, I just signed with Ping, I just signed with Callaway, Tyler's, whoever, that's going, that's automatic branding for those companies immediately. Um, and you'll probably get more money back than you actually put into it. But people just, they don't see that. And I don't, I, for the life of me, I really don't understand why. I kind of look at black golf as I do women's golf. You know, if you look at women's golf, every woman who plays golf says the same thing. The moment someone comes out with clothes that fit properly and that look good, they're going to make a killing. Well, if you look at black golf, it's the exact same thing. Up until this day, no one has ever, 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 and I literally mean ever, marketed to the black consumer. Even the Tiger ads weren't marketing to the black consumer. It did, no one has ever thought about saying, okay, you know what? I'm going to make a plan to go out here and go after the black golfing public and see what I can get. Ain't happened because they're too afraid that they're going to run off the traditional golfers in that process. You know, that, that was interesting that uh, it came to light when we went through all the candidates, Maurice, that, that came through for the Grow the Game and, um, they were, they were consistent themes, not enough tournaments that I can play in, uh, that I can afford, and equipment, and just all the, the support system. It's equipment, nutrition, uh, things that as you move along on the tour, you get. Uh, but I remember Daniel Augustus, uh, you know, big, strong kid. He said, I, haven't, I have the same irons for six years. Mm -hmm. And I said, you got to be kidding me because, you know, I just can't afford a new set or I said, which is you couldn't get a discount or something. He's like, so I, I was mean, there. Right. I was there when he talked to the tailor made rep and said, Hey, and he's played in the PGA tour event. You know, can I get some, you know, do you all have a PUD or something like that? I can use to get a brand new bag, you know, clubs, uh, you know, driver through wedges. And the guy directed them to tailormade.com or to a PGA Tour Superstore. You can find something that fits your needs there. No way. That's ridiculous. I yeah. sat, I was sitting next to him when it happened. I was like, wow, 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 and more wow. But you have to understand this. So let's, let's be 1,000% transparent with this, okay? The same thing happens to LPGA players. I know ladies right now on the LPGA Tour that are on the tour with 100% status that can't get equipment. But you have Instagram girls who are getting bags left and right. So what Instagram has done is it's actually taken away from the professional, the golfing professional who is doing this for a living, who 
is the person who will really utilize the equipment. They don't care. The marketing dollars are more so going to the quote unquote influencers, which is why I hate that term, but that's where it's going. If you're not an influencer or somebody with a heavy social presence, they don't care. Ironically, if you look at most of your PGA and LPGA players, they have no social presence at all. None. It's just not there. So we're going so mean, to go off. We're going to go off on the uh, an exit right now for a second because the USGA came back in with another change of the rules that have to do with amateur status. And to your point, Maurice, they're they're allowing amateurs now to do these types of deals, and it really comes from what you're just saying. These influencers. Well, the thing I don't understand is if you are doing that, then how are you an amateur? Yeah. Now, what they're doing is covering their butt. So I remember going to some of these high-profile junior tournaments and seeing the touring vans there and seeing these top junior players. I saw one kid go through two sets of clubs in one day. And I was like, oh, he didn't like these. He's going to give them back. No, he didn't. They stayed right in his room. I said, now, on the other side of that, I am a person who's had a club deal for probably seven years now. I get irons sent. To, I probably have 13, 14 sets of irons. I probably had 20 something sets of irons in my career, which is not 10 years. And I've given away more than half of what I get. Um, I don't believe in hoarding stuff. If I get something I like, it is cool. I keep it. If I get something I like, it is cool, but I know I'm never going to use it. I always give it away. I don't sell it. I don't do any of that. I always know that there's some professional out there that needs it. Uh, I just got a SIM two driver and I gave it away to a college kid. I had no desire to hit that thing. Um, but you have to understand that here we go again with someone creating a monster and in a few years, this whole amateur status thing is going to become yet another problem. I can assure yeah. you that. Um, because people are going to find loopholes. You know, this is a game where honesty and integrity are supposed to be a big thing, but that's not the life that's lived every single day when people are playing and watching this game. That's why you have people who have, who have these inflated handicaps and so on and so forth. You're dealing with a dishonest society and you're expecting integrity. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, go ahead, Randy. That's right. Well, I was just going to uh, um, share something that... Uh, a recollection when I was with Maurice, I think it was in 2013, Maurice in St. Louis at the senior champ, senior PGA championship, PGA senior championship. And we were at a boys and girls club in East St. Louis, a uh, pretty sobering experience. Uh, we had about a hundred something kids and Maurice came in to do his um, exhibition. So we took the kids from the boys and girls club and we walked two blocks through broken glass craziness um, just a rundown neighborhood. We go to a, a field that was a really a, a sort of in the block. Um, it just kind of run down. So Maurice was using a limited flight balls and we were doing this exhibition and, you know, that was, uh, it, it cuts to another problem with um, exposure events and helping kids get excited and inspired about the game, but there's no way to transition those kids into the game. Right. And all these kids that, we're looking up to Maurice and he's a Pied Piper and he's walking down the street and they want to be with him and he gets down on his knees and I get emotional thinking about it. Um, it's just, you know, there's no, you know, that was wonderful. But then how did those kids, those kids were dying to play the game. They were dying to get into the game. They wanted to be like Maurice. And then 
what happens the next day, the next week, the next month? And, you know, it's, uh, you know, that's just really the sad thing that the game, the industry spends all this money and time on things that they think is important, but um, there's a, a, a major, major, major uh, Delta Gulf between these exposure events that you could look at it and say, it's a waste of time, resources and energy. Because if you don't have retention, if you don't have a pathway to get the kids onto the course and access on the course, then stop doing it. If you want to feel good about it, fine, but you're going to fool yourself that you're growing the game. And that's why Maurice, his grow the game is actually, will grow the game because the dude knows exactly the, the, the issues like this that are out there. Yeah, I mean, you look at that incident in St. Louis, probably the easiest way I could describe that is you go to Austin. Uh, I'm certain all three of you all have been to Austin. There's this place called the Chip and Putt there. Perfect. It's right in the middle of the city. It's a par three course-ish. Um, it's a, probably an easy way to get hit by a golf ball, but it's a lot of fun. <laughs> it's, it's, it's walking distance. I mean, it's right there. I think it's seven bucks. So it definitely is not a place that's ever going to make any money. It's the slowest round of golf alive. You're hitting off of mats. The greens aren't great, but who really cares? You're just in this place where you can go out there, swing clubs, enjoy. Obviously, Austin has a different vibe than most places, but it's just it's so cool. It's the only place I've ever seen a guy walk with a 12-pack and play golf. It was, it was the coolest thing I ever saw in my life. But those are things, you know, if people decide to put these par three courses in the middle of places uh, that were, you know, you don't need real grass, just artificial turf. That's fine. Just take care of it properly, especially where artificial turf has come today, how easy it is to maintain and things like that. Yeah, it's a lot more expensive, but when you start looking at mowers and cost of people, grounds crew and so on and so forth, it's probably in the long run a much cheaper option. But I remember when the PGA of America did the partnership with the Boys and Girls Club. Bob and I were sitting right there when this whole thing started. And I told everybody, this is going to fail. You're, there's no transportation. You can't get the kids there. Bob's looking at me. I'm looking at Bob and everybody's like, oh, don't worry about it. It's going to work. I said, no, it's not. I'm a Boys and Girls Club kid. I'm telling you, this doesn't work. I know the Boys and Girls Club I was at, I mean, closest golf course was 20 minutes. How are you going to get 65, 70, 100 kids there? it doesn't even exist and everybody was oh no no and then they did the thing with ken griffey and davis love the third and all this other stuff at the pga show and made this big stink about it and then you never heard anything about it after about four months it just kind of went away into the night real smooth like nothing ever happened and the issue that i have with not just golf i think it's life in general um when you look at it all you know, Martin Luther King was assassinated 53 years ago at this point. And at what point in life are you going to say, you know, his I have a dream speech? How many generations ago was that? How many dreams have been deferred and or lost in that time period? How many people have not been recognized for what they accomplished? You know, Tuskegee Airmen fought in World War II and weren't recognized until I think it was 2008. That's a long time to wait. Um, golf just chooses not to recognize black people or the accomplishments of black people. And that's why I had a, such a huge problem with no one recognizing black history month. If you look at the LPGA and the Symmetra tour, they did it right. They had a video. I think it was the first or the second day, yep. uh, the PGA of America, they posted a lot of things on their social with black PGA members 
hashtag Black History, but that's not it. You know, you should put those active people up all year long doing tips and just doing what they do. Um, Black History Month is more of a time of recognition of, you know, the past, most importantly, you know, how many Black PGA members have come and gone like Jeff Donovan's dad. You know, that's a good example of somebody who was groundbreaking in the trailblazer and really recognizing those individuals. Uh, Callaway could have done an amazing post with, you know, Jim Dent and Jim Thorpe and other people that they they had actually sponsored in the past. TaylorMade could have done the post with Lee Elder. And, and I mean, I can go down the whole list of the golfing world that has actually sponsored black golfers, but none of them decided to say, hey, you know what, in, in good taste, and most importantly, just to shut Maurice up, we're going to make this post so that he won't be able to say that we're racist or anything else under the sun. That would have been the easiest thing to do. And I've been screaming that for the last couple of years. And ironically, they still choose not to do it, but they will recognize women, international women and sport day and all this other stuff and sunglass day and hat day and uh, Betty White's birthday. And I was like, man, how crazy is it that, you know, the role that Lee Elder and Jim Dent and Charlie Sifford and all this other stuff is less important than a picture of Ben Hogan in a sombrero for National Hat Day. That's deep. I, I want to jump in there what you said about Boys and Girls Club. Bobby and I have talked about this a ton. That was the lowest point of my professional career was when they stopped that program. I, I was doing one in Sanford and one downtown Orlando, and it was the most rewarding thing I've ever done, still to this day. But the dangling the carrot scenario, where there's nothing for them after the structure of the program, and the, the onus is on the pros to figure out how to make this work, it's, it's, it's very disappointing. I, I could see it in Bobby's face when he was talking about it. And it's it's I don't even I don't even know how to explain it anymore other than the scenario I just had in my head after this discussion is you're dangling a carrot and then yanking that thing away and there's well, nothing that goes, worse than that that goes back to what you just said what can you all do that's why I said nothing I wasn't being funny no I know, I know you guys you're not the problem you're not the problem that you have with the PGA is or not even just PGA, PGA, USGA, I can go down all of them. So it's not singling the PGA out, but how can you say that you're trying to help people when you don't have people that you're trying to help be a part of the discussion on the solution? It doesn't even make sense. It's like me trying to, it's like me trying to coach a woman who plays golf and she was like, oh, my breast getting away when I swing. I'm like, well, hell, I don't know how that feels. I can't help you with that. I don't, I really don't have a clue. I don't know. To, uh, I, I can find somebody to talk to you about, about this, but I don't know how that feels. I don't know how to tailor that swing to that. Right. So there's sometimes in life when you just have to say, I don't know, I want to help. Yeah. And that's what I did with the grow the game. You know, I wanted to help, but I knew me being a part of the selection committee wasn't a good look. It wasn't a good idea. I, I figured I'd know a lot of the people who came in and, I would maybe not, you know, really go in there with a clean slate looking at some of these applications. So I came up and I said, okay, well, who are three of the smartest people I know? Who are three people that love this game of golf? And how, you know, do I trust it? Do I trust these people with my life? And the answer was yes, 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 for all three. 
and that's how I came up with the selection committee. But and Bob will even tell you, people have asked me all the time, oh, well, what about this? What about that? You know, can you help? I was like, I don't have anything to do with it. I legitimately to this day don't know and don't care how they came up with the the people because I trusted them enough. I valued them enough to say, okay, they know how to make this work. They're all talented and we're just going to roll with whatever they they come up with. The problem is the PGA and all these other, you know, the USGA and all these other governing bodies want to micromanage. They're they're worried about being politically correct. And then the part of their politically correctness, they're offending the people who they shouldn't be offending rather than opening up the eyes of the people who have continuously been the offending individuals. Like the, the problem that you're running into is that we're not, we're so afraid of losing our fan base, our rooted fan base where we're not willing to tell them the truth. Be like, hey, okay, you know what? Here's a problem in this game. Here's a problem in the culture of this sport. We have to change this. And it's the, I think the thing that kind of sucks about the whole thing is no matter how affluent the golf course may be, all of those people watch sports. And all of those people who watch sports will cheer for black athletes till the cows come home. Ironically, they don't feel comfortable with black people sitting in the same clubhouse as them while they're cheering for black players on the television. That's crazy. Yeah, you know, I've, uh, I've told this across the country, actually, you know, when I was doing some or my workshops for when I was at headquarters and I said, uh, you know, I still go to golf clubs and I feel uncomfortable. And how bizarrely stupid should a middle-aged white guy, second-generation PJ member, uh, yeah, I said middle-aged, it's, it's unbelievable. Uh, you know, I, sh- I shouldn't feel uncomfortable. And I won't name the clubs, but you get that sense when I go. So when Marie shows up, when some ladies show up, somebody of color, diversity, you know, there's a lot of lip service. Um, I've never tried to be one of those uh, squeaky wheels that don't supply a solution. And I do feel I'm trying my best to supply solutions, but, um, you know, I don't know, Andy, if you felt it, it just, or Brendan, like, Oh yeah. You, you know, when it, it's, it's ironic when we're going to a place and, you know, people looking at you, you'd go in the right places and that, I mean, I can only imagine. And I, I do try to put my, my, um, you know, my thoughts in other people's footsteps when they were coming to my facility. And that was one of the biggest things that my, my clubs, uh, the culture, the, the welcoming and, and it's got to be meaningful and everybody at the facility has to understand the meaning of that. It can't be just me. It can't be the assistant pro. I mean, it's got to be part-timers like everybody that steps foot and represents that golf club. They have to understand why we're doing what we're doing. And if they don't, you know, I don't care if you show up every day and like, you can't be on my team. You know, my team, it's got to represent more than just, Oh, I show up and I, I, you know, I work hard. Yeah, I mean, but you, go ahead, Andy. You go. I was just, I was just going to say that that the the whole exclusivity thing with the golf clubs is such a complex thing, right? You know, and and I I have a, a story that I had a I had a an acquaintance at Chicago Golf Club who wanted me to become a member at Chicago Golf Club and you know, kind of introduced me to the club president, to a couple of really important people there. I went and played golf, had lunch, started to, to get to know them a little more. And to make a long story short, 
I was not, I was not good enough for them, right? It, it, and it had to do with Callaway, believe it or not, in the, in the USGA ERC thing at that point in time. But, but, you know, I found out through my friend why I was not asked to continue to, to go along that process. And, and ultimately my point is that it's, it's a much larger problem you know, it, it's, it's just an exclusivity thing, right? Yeah. And, it, and it's, a, it's a ridiculous <laughs> thing. But the thing that I couldn't imagine is I can pass the visual test, right? Somebody sees me there at Chicago Golf Club playing, you know, they're not going to take a second look. I look like some of their members, right? But I can't imagine being in Maurice's shoes, right? Where you don't even pass the, the visual test, right? Much less all the other things that they're going to, gonna get the mic microscope out and, and wanna find out about you. But I don't know. It, my, my test is different though. So you have to understand when I go to a club, it's kind of like a, a celebrity going, you know what I mean? I know yeah. if I looked at me versus Daniel, Daniel Augustus, it would be two completely different receptions. They know when I go to a club, oh, we're a long drive champ, blah, 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 blah. And then even more so, I might get some probably interesting looks now with Grow the Game that may be, you know, since that's the newest topic of what I've been doing, or I know there were some places where I've gone and I've played with my, my Black Lives Matter shafts and it causes an interesting conversation. Um, but I, you know, with, I understand that my road is going to be different. The way how I'm viewed is going to be different. Um, but the, the average person isn't going to have the same response that I'm going to have because some people are just going to look at it and say, Hey, you know, this is a long drive guy. The only, you know, the Niagara falls, but whatever the case may be. And for them, that's going to be an amped up moment. And that is what it is, but that's not going to be the norm. I understand that I'm just the exception and I'm not stupid enough to believe that my experiences are going to be everyone else's, even though I've had some really terrible ones, but I probably would expect to have had, to have had a lot more terrible ones if I hadn't accomplished the things I've accomplished on the golf course. There's no question. <laughs> that's, a, yeah. that's a good point. Yeah, when you did the Niagara Falls and you hit it over, <laughs> like everybody should know about that. That was yeah. like insane. That's a, uh, like, yeah, 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 you're, yeah. You guys actually broke my heart with that interview. That was probably the roughest interview I've ever done in my life when I came on here after that because. I used to think that I was bugging out and that I was tripping. And after coming on here and you guys were like, yeah, that just, that never got what we thought it was going to get. I was like, yeah, that, that hurts. That, that, it, it was just more validating exactly how I felt. And I was like, man, that, that really sucks. But you know, it's, it's one of those things. I mean, you look at like right now, one of the big things obviously is because it's Bay Hill. Right. Yeah. So they're talking about Justin James hitting the ball from the back tees over to the green. Bob, Bob was, I think this was 14 Bob when they did that taping of me doing it. I hit the ball on the tee box on the next hole over the green. And that tape, that tape went, no, I'm serious. The tape's gone. You can't find it. If you look at a lot of the stuff, I dare you to do this. This is going to be a good one for you. Go and look up world long drive, look up me on YouTube because it doesn't or go on the golf channel's website and go under the search bar. You won't find any of my footage of me hitting the ball. You'll see interviews. You'll see a lot of that stuff. But when I won in Denver, it doesn't exist. 
When I hit seven out of eight balls in the grid at world championships, that footage does not exist. A lot of that stuff is almost lost forever. And the thing that you have to understand is when you're looking at it, it's like anything else in life. You know, when some, when a people or a group has been conquered, then the conqueror, what do they do? They burn all history of what, what those individuals were. And then that group of people becomes whoever they want them to be. If I want to call them savages, if I want to say they're angry, if I want to say they were terrible or whatever, I control the narrative. And that's kind of one of the biggest issues that we're running into. And that's why I'm so big on, um, you know, USGA and the OEMs and all these other people recognizing Black History Month, um, and especially the people in the past, because what you'll end up with is, you know, think about a world where Lee Elder is forgotten or Calvin Pete is forgotten, or the fact that most people don't even know <laughs> that Joe Lewis was the first person to, to break the color barrier. Yeah. I mean, that is absolutely <laughs> crazy most people don't even know that Althea Gibson was on the LPGA mm-hmm. they don't know that and if you don't at least throw it out there once a year and recognize these folks and say hey you know what we appreciate the contribution or the fact that every time you start around the golf you actually have to thank a black person for inventing the tea yeah crazy your your point on black history month is just boggling my mind andy and i had cal pete jr on uh what two episodes ago andy and and, and they worked together andy and, and calvin worked together with cal oh, tell him to call me andy i've been trying to find this guy for a lifetime dude he is the easiest person in the world to find just flip on facebook, facebook. <laughs> I t- send him a message and tell him to call me seriously i, I will like, i really need to talk to him i will thank you i I, I i was a golf nerd growing up but I was shocked that he didn't realize how much of an influence his dad was on guys like me when I was growing up. I The first PGA Tour event I went to in person was the BC Open in Endicott, New York. His dad won that year. And the reason that I admired him so much is I'm not a long ball hitter. I hit it straight. And he was the king of hitting fairways. And yeah. the fact that... that his his son really didn't know how how what reverence his father had to a lot of people that's a shame man that that it's not like you're saying that these these pioneers are not being held up is important parts not of black golf history but of golf history. his golf history is whole yeah i know yeah. and that's that's the it's 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 going to be that way until we get people in these positions of power that really want to make change. There's a difference between saying you want to make change over the internet and these PSAs like everyone did during the summer about how golf wants to do this and do that. I'll give you the best example in the world, okay? Just clear your brain, take it back a year and two months, okay? January comes, you know, everybody's excited for a golf season. Oh man, the 2020 season is going to be amazing. We're really looking forward to it. You know, they start in Hawaii, they go out west, they go to the farmers, and they do all of this stuff. And then you get to the AT&T. You know, PGA shows just wrapped up. Everybody's like, "Yeah, great season." Here comes that Sunday. Kobe dies that morning. 
everybody just kind of goes numb, right? You see Tiger coming off the course, JT, all these guys who actually knew Kobe. And it's it's got this, when you're in the same state, you're not too far away, which is the crazy part, right? And it just goes into this thing where it just gets weird. NBA does their tribute to Kobe. Um, you know, the waste management does their tribute to Kobe. The pins at eight and 24, everybody's got Mamba mentality, so on and so forth. Three days later is actually Black History Month. No recognition at all. So it was okay to be a gladiator, but it wasn't okay to be recognized. It's the craziest part of that whole ordeal when you really, really sit back and look at it. Um, the whole term of being, I guess, progressive is what everybody's using now. That's the term that's being used. Until you get people who are in those positions that make those decisions, who are willing to be edgy, who are willing to be progressive, who are willing to be on the proper side of history. Because at one point, it was actually politically correct to say all kinds of weird and bad things about Black people and women and everything else under the sun. It was okay to have a golf course where you didn't allow Black members or Black players or women to be on the premises. That was socially acceptable at one point. And now, if someone were to do that, it would be the most disgusting thing in the world. Justin Thomas lost his sponsorship because one word, literally. One word that you never would have heard if COVID had never happened. You never even would have heard that sound bite. It would have right. never existed. Right. Um, which is crazy, right? And it didn't take them a long time to to take that sponsorship away from i think it was 48 hours and it was gone um but then you look at and that's another good example charles howe the third with the whole blackface thing right um and it takes him how many years to decide that he wants to do a partnership with the apga tour ironically after george floyd is killed yeah boy some things aren't just aren't a coincidence so it seems like in the back of everybody's mind, whether people like it or not, you know, there are certain things that are socially unacceptable. And then um, it's kind of like diversity and inclusion. You know, if you look at that, it doesn't really apply to black people. Everybody else has been included in the game of golf. They've been accepted in the game of golf. Uh, as much as people may not like that, the fact that the LPJ has a lot of Asian ladies on the tour, but guess what? They work their butt off. That's why they're there. You know, it's an open opportunity for a lot of people to get out there. And if you have it, you have it. Um, but when it comes down to black people, never been really accepted. Um, you look at a couple of weeks ago, ironically, the person who got the most publicity at the AT&T was Kamayu Johnson, who was out of all black golfers out walking out there, the most uneducated golfer dropped out of middle school they love that story of golf saved his life and that whole ordeal well golf saved a lot of people's lives yeah. but they like the narrative of showing the black male who's not educated who felt like he was groomed and primed and proper through this game of golf uh compared to a willie mack who's won 60 something times went to school graduated educated through college uh didn't had an amazing collegiate career we don't want to showcase that because that could actually give hope that education is out there and there's some very well-qualified Black men and Black women. Or the Caribbean Abe, All-American at Alabama, played on the squad for four years. 
did a lot of amazing things, academic and athletic All-American. Mariah Stackhouse came out of Stanford. You look at her when she left Stanford and went to the LPGA, she didn't get any real good sponsorship. Crazy. So, I mean, dangling the carrot, Mariah Stackhouse is the best example of dangling the carrot ever. You go to the Ivy League of the West, you win the national championship, you are the captain of that team. You are the, the anchor of that team. Nationally recognized, Golf Channel, Sports Center, boom, boom, boom. Condoleezza Rice is your mentor. You can't even get a real sponsorship. What else? I mean, she is literally the best example we have ever had in the last 10 years. I'm, I don't use Tiger. I use her because she went through academic All-American, athletic All-American. What else do you want from the girl? And then you don't ever get a chance to smell the roses. They throw you out there. You're on the tour. You're by yourself. You're lonely. And you're still trying to struggle to find a way to get what you've already deserved. That's sad. Yeah. So then how can I tell a little kid who's in eighth grade or fifth grade or ninth grade, hey, you got hope out here on the LPGA or the PGA tour in this world of golf. I'm lying to them. I'm looking them dead in the face and I'm telling them a lie. And that's where your issue comes in. I mean, I've been open and willing to talk to and work with USGA, PGA, any of these OEM companies. Be like, hey, come talk to me. I'll give you all the answers that you need because I want to see people succeed. I want to see people live out their dreams. I'm not coming here saying I need to be a multimillionaire and drive a Lambo and a Rolls Royce and all this other stuff. No, I just want to make sure that when people have accomplished the goals, when they have actually reached the carrot, you don't move it. Stop moving it. You don't have to like that they got there. You could have set these ridiculously crazy lofty goals that you never expected them to accomplish. But then when they get it, just say, hats off. Kind of like when you birdie a hole and somebody holes out from the fairway. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's cool. You're pissed off that you lost, but what can you say? What, uh, what can people do to help your initiative, your, your foundation? Oh man, just go to grow the grow the game golf. I'm super surprised that that website was even open, but it worked perfectly. Um, grow the game golf. They can donate there. Um, that's what we're doing. I mean, other thing that people can do, which is, is this is going to be the craziest thing, but the best thing that an individual can do is write to the USGA, write to the PGA of America, write to the RNA write to all of the OEMs and say, hey, you know something? We believe in what Maurice is doing. He's proven that he's here to help grow this amazing game of golf and tell those people that they need to get on board with a financial commitment to this program. They need to be a supporter of this program. I want it to be a scenario where when we select these three men and these three women every year, that they can automatically, by getting this, they'll be able to walk into any manufacturer and get a club contract with them the moment that they're awarded this. They shouldn't have to, if I play ping, I shouldn't have to go to TaylorMade because TaylorMade is the only person who's involved. No, they should be able to go and play whatever they're already comfortable playing and have no problems with that. These club manufacturers need to do that. They need to offer that ambassadorship or that tour staff player, whatever they want to call it. And they also need to put the financial commitment to grow the game. I mean, that's that's where it's all really going to be. I'm not a, I don't get paid for any of this. 
I'm not, I'm just the, the voice. I'm not on staff. So it's not like I'm running the foundation and I'm paying myself a salary for doing not at all, not in the least bit. And I think that's where a lot of people always wonder and they, they question, you know, if I give these dollars, where are they going? You know, you see that a lot with hurricane and national natural disaster relief funds. They always wonder how much of the money is actually going to the people. I can guarantee you 100% of this is going to the athletes and the people who are working to help get grants and sponsor dollars and all this other stuff. None of this money is ever going into the hands of Maury Salah because I'll go make my money on the golf course. That's what I'm here to do is just to try to help grow this game that has given me a life and allow for me to see some really amazing and cool places and do some amazing things. Bobby, Andy, any last thoughts? No, I think it's awesome, Maurice, what you're doing. And uh, I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I would like to think that we're making progress. And I'd like to think that as a society, as a, as a human race, that we're making progress, right? So it'd be nice to, to start to see some of these things come to life. Yeah. Um, and please tell Calvin, this is, this is a life. I'll just send him death. a message. Okay, yeah. Tell them it's life or death. I know it sounds, it's that serious though. It's a serious conversation I need to have with him. I just sent him a message. Cool. I appreciate it. Got it. Bobby? Yeah, I've been around this uh, this guy, Mighty Mo. I call him a long time. So uh, he's always inspiring and he's uh, he's making a difference. And it's nice to be around him to feel like you've got a little, um, little bit of uh, help whatever we can do for you, my friend. So, um, you know, we'll, we're always talking, so I'm going <laughs> to talk tomorrow or something, but uh, we'll, you know, we got a ways to go, but at least we're on the journey together. Yep. Just like I said, man, tell people to write, tell people to donate, write the governing bodies and the OEMs and donate. And that's all I can ever ask people to do. That's it. You know, my, my final thought, it's, it's, it's so cool to see people using the, the fame through, through accolades, through achievements that they have and doing it for the good of other people. There's nothing better than that. So hats off to you, man. A um, lot of success, wishing you a lot of success with this. And I, I know Bobby's involved with it, but if there's anything I can do on, on the local level, we're always trying to get um, more kids into the game through our organization. Um, whether it be through PGA Junior League, I got free spots for kids and I want every color of the rainbow playing the game. So, so just, just know that here locally in Orlando. I know you're here locally too. Um, appreciate you being on the show. Uh, loving the links. We'll get this, uh, we'll get the video portion uploaded. It takes a while, my slow ass computer. So bear with me. We'll get this <laughs> uploaded and edited. Uh, we'll get the audio portion up on any of the any of the places you get your podcast. Again, appreciate your time, Maurice, Bobby, Andy. Love having you guys as co-hosts. Until next time, we'll see you guys. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, Maurice. Check you guys later. See ya. Thanks for listening to Love of the Links Golf Radio. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Our website is littlelinksers.com backslash love. You can email us at loveofthelinks at gmail.com.